0: The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the Seminary, and I'm also your podcast host. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming into the studio Dr. Joseph A. Piper, Jr., Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology, but also our president here at the Seminary, and we are celebrating in 2018 to make Dr. Piper blush, his 20th anniversary as president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And I mention that because we have a celebratory fundraising banquet that we're going to hold in Dr. Piper's honor on Thursday, March 15th. At, um, at the Commerce Club in downtown Greenville. We would love for any of you who are in the area or coming in out of, from out of town for the conference to join us for that, uh, for that banquet. All proceeds will benefit student scholarships because as you all know, Dr. Piper is passionate about graduating men with a burden for the lost, not a burden of debt. So it's only fitting that uh, whatever we raise that night for this spring should go toward scholarships.
1: Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me in the studio. Thank you, Zach. It's great to be here. I love doing this program with you. Yes,
0: I, I enjoy these times myself, as you know. So we are um, I'm going to pray in a moment, but I also want to just encourage you all to check out gpts.edu slash conference for information about our Spring Theology Conference. It's right around the corner. We already have um, a few dozen people registered, and we're very excited about that. we got a, a jump on registration already, and so we're, we're getting questions about the conference, and there's a lot of information that can be found there at GPTS. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into our questions. Our Father and our God, we do bless your name. You are so good to us. You not only bless us with life and with the enjoyments of this life, but you call us to commune with you in worship, to praise your name, to know you, and to serve you as your children. Lord, I pray that today you would use this session even now to make us more fit for service in your kingdom, and that you would be glorified by it as we handle these questions and turn to your word for answers to them. I thank you for Dr. Piper, and I thank you for how you've used him over many years, particularly here at Greenville Seminary, and I ask that you would continue to use him in such capacity for many years to come. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, Dr. Piper, our first question comes from Chad Warner of Greenville, South Carolina. Chad is very good about getting in at the top of the list every month. And his question is, can Satan or his minions, false prophets, antichrists, the antichrist, etc., perform true miracles?
1: Chad, there are basically two approaches to those passages. I think you probably have in mind what Paul wrote in... 2 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 2, about the man of sin, as well as what John uh, saw in his vision of, of the book of Revelation with the uh, um, false gods performing uh, signs that would uh, beguile the people of the earth. In and, 2 and Thessalonians... Uh, This one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all deceptions of wickedness for those who perish. So the question is, are all of the signs merely deceptions, sleight of hand and tricks of magic? Or is there some supernatural power manifested? I tend toward the second. I think that... We underestimate uh, the power of Satan uh, in these areas to do counterfeits. He himself is a counterfeit angel, an angel of light. So uh, perhaps they can do some signs. We saw the magicians in Egypt uh, could mimic the first two or three plagues, Uh, um, but quickly God manifested his power and conquest over them. The Christian does not need to be afraid of these uh, supernatural uh, signs and powers for a couple of reasons. One is, he who is in us is more powerful than he who is in the world. We are protected. Even if we're put to death, uh, we're but ushered in the presence of the Lord. Also, we're given the criteria, for example, Deuteronomy 18 and other places in Scripture, that even if they can do false signs, the ministry is always measured by truth. If their message is in accord with Scripture, then we are to uh, believe them. And if it's not in accord with Scripture, we're not to believe them. All the more, I think that in our age there are no more God-given uh, signs mediated through a human agent And so, if someone is doing these kind of things, they're frauds, and whether Satan is to some degree enabling them to do these things, they're still frauds, and we need to treat them as such. Now, I know this might
0: take us farther afield than the question. Chad, I know, is is firmed up on his views of cessationism and gifts and things, but you you say that you believe in in this day and age there are no more God-given gifts gifts of signs uh like you mentioned well what what evidence would you marshal to that conviction you didn't
1: quote me correctly first oh okay mediated through human agency Mm. so god still does wonderful things he he can heal whether it's through an aspirin or whether it's directly uh, no healing takes place sometimes as our confession says he can use uh, against means with means above means in addition to means Uh, So I believe in in supernatural acts of God, answers to prayer. Uh, But a miracle was uh, such a thing that was done through human agency. So this kind of ties in, let's just relate it then to uh, a later question that uh, we have on our list today uh, about uh, tongue speaking. Question number four, Jerry DeOleo of Lehigh Acres, Florida. Other questions dealing with tongues. It seems that the idea of these funky tongues that we see in the charismatic movement is something that goes all the way back to the second century with the Montanists and some other people. Can you answer the question, what is the origin or what is the point of this phenomenon, and exactly how do you tackle this with people who are so convicted that they are speaking celestial tongues because of a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14? So what we have Uh, in 2 Corinthians is the the list of these extraordinary gifts that the uh, Apostle is having to deal with because they're being abused uh, in Corinth. And in chapter 14, uh, Paul gets into the the proper use of the gifts uh, and lays down some principles for their use that I'll, I'll come back to. But these gifts were primarily, as we read them, there were some, I think, gifts of revelation uh, that were given to uh, the church. As we look at the list in chapter 12, um, there is uh, the gift of knowledge and uh, trying to find that gift. Uh, There it is. Verse 8, for to one is given the word of wisdom to the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the Spirit. Now, I would take those as revelatory gifts uh, for bringing truth to the church uh, and perhaps even the gift of inspiration. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and that's faith to know that God's going to uh, do something extraordinary. So when Peter and John looked on the man born lame, Uh, They knew that God intended to heal him, Uh, to another gifts of healing, uh, to another the effecting of miracles and so, you know, the raising of the axe head and other types of things uh, like that, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. That's basically the, the gift. Now, these gifts, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, were apostolic signs. And you ask the question, if Paul said, I did the signs of an apostle among you, thus you know I'm an apostle, what did Paul have that they didn't have? That's the key, because some of them had some of these gifts. Well, I think probably two things. I think Paul had all the gifts, but more importantly, Paul could communicate those gifts as an apostle to the church, but no other person besides an apostle could communicate the gifts. In fact, I was just reading this week in my devotions in Acts When Philip in Acts 9 goes to uh, Samaria and the people are converted, the apostles have to come down and give them the gifts. Philip could not do that. That ties into what Paul says in Romans chapter one. He wanted to come to Rome in order to impart to them some charismata, some gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so only the apostles could give the gifts. They exercised the gifts for revelation they had the gifts as confirmation of their office. They could give the gifts for the church in this infancy stage when it didn't have scripture. So the churches needed prophets. Uh, they needed wisdom and knowledge to know how to interpret the Old Testament. Everything that we have in, the Old, in our New Testament, they didn't have. And so God gave them uh, these gifts. But with the completion of canon, the gifts are no longer necessary. With the cessation of the apostolic office, the gifts are no longer necessary. And really a really useful little book. Uh, that gets into this is Walt Chantry's book, Banner of Truth, publishes it, Signs of an Apostle. I encourage people to get that book and to read it. So tongues, well, two things are going on. Uh, One is that, uh, yes, in the early church, uh, there were those who manufactured these gifts in order to uh, uh, convince people that they were hyper-spiritual. Part of the problem of modern tongues is it's a sign of having the Holy Spirit But Paul tells us in Romans 8, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not indwelt by the Spirit. He's the Spirit of Christ who brings us into union with Christ. It's not a sign of then, tongues are not a sign of of spiritual superiority. Now they are regulated in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 by, if they're used publicly, there must be the gift of interpretation. This doesn't mean the tongue speaker didn't know what he was saying, but he had to be tested. This is the way you kept false teachers out. So somebody else had to have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to others on the basis of two witnesses that, yes, what this person is saying they spoke is in fact indeed what the Spirit gave them. Uh, tongues as such in the New Covenant Church were signs to the Jews And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians uh, of a curse, that the gospel is now being communicated. I think New Testament tongues were all a foreign language uh, and uh, served that purpose of uh, distinguishing to the Jews that the gospel had come now in Christ and the the church was open to the nations of the world. Now, what's happened is there is this uh, emotionalism you call it funky tongues, this emotionalism (laughs) that expresses itself in tongues. As a uh, teenager, I was attracted to this movement, so I went to the meeting, and I went back to the uh, room afterwards, and they tell you how to breathe and how to move your tongue. It's completely manufactured. Moreover, we also know that spiritism and false religions, for example, in Brazil, very hectic uh, spiritual exercises that include uh, tongue speaking so I tie this in then to Chad's question uh, I think there are different types of people I think there are sincere people who are beguiled who want more than what particularly liberalism or weak evangelicalism can offer them and they're seeking a deeper spirituality Packer says when he discusses this they normally grow out of that when they really begin to a commune with the God of the Bible. I think there's charlatans who use this to beguile people uh, and I think in that case they could actually be uh, false signs of the, of Satan in order to deceive. And then I think there's just people that emotionally that fall into this and because they want more. I think to to highlight a couple key things that, like, that really
0: were pointed out to me in your answer, Dr. Piper, one is that Paul as an apostle could impart or communicate gifts to others who even though they could receive it could not then pass it on even further i i never really thought of that as as sealing the the legitimacy of of his apostleship but also the 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 whole age of of having gifts mediated through human agents you know these miraculous gifts so that that really sticks out to me i think that's something important for us to keep in mind as we speak with our friends who are talking about these phenomenal personalities they meet who can do wonderful things you could say okay does he ever then endow others with those gifts what no well then what's the purpose of what he's doing is it to attract attention to himself or to build up the church because that's what these gifts were for is clearly communicated in our passage together. And then the other thing is the the provoking the Jews to jealousy and and giving them a curse. That's another aspect of gifts that we don't think about. But when you look at the the last half of Romans eleven, you see that's exactly one of God's purposes in bringing uh, the revelation to to the Gentiles to in gathering this this wild olive branch and putting it into. The, the the church is to provoke the cutoff branches to jealousy right. so that they might be brought in again as well. It's all part of the promise of God. Thank you, Dr. Pipe, and thank you, Chad and Jerry, for these thoughtful questions. You know, every month we deal with questions uh, uh, with regards to gifts and and. Uh, charismania, so to speak, and other things. And uh, there's good reason for that. It's because much of the church in our day is is misguided on these points. So we're happy to receive these questions and to answer them. Our next question comes from our friend Lucas Salgado of Recife, Brazil. And he has a couple questions. We're going to start with one now. Thinking about the 500 years Reformation anniversary and the famous phrase, Ecclesia Reformata et Semper Reformanda Est which are the doctrines slash areas that the modern church needs reformation today, I guess, other than the charismania I just mentioned, (laughs) Dr. Piper?
1: Well, uh, Lucas, nice to hear from you. The uh, church uh, reformed is always reforming. The reformed church is always reforming. Now, oftentimes, this is simply a slogan that's used by those who are not committed to our confession. And so it's a way of trying to stretch the boundaries beyond confessional Christianity. Frankly, I don't know anything in our confession in terms of a doctrine that's explicated that I would disagree with. Now, I would disagree with nuances of this doctrine or that doctrine. So, for example, if the confession teaches that we're to sing psalms exclusively, I'm not sure it does, but if it does, then I would scruple that and say, well, I think the Bible also would require me. So that would be little areas, exegetically, where we might come to a more profound understanding. And you see that, for example, in American Presbyterianism. Exegetically, the Antichrist was obviously more than the man of sin in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and wasn't necessarily the pope or the papacy. So John says there were many antichrists in his day, and he was dealing with this docetist who said that Jesus only appeared to be a man and wasn't really a man, and they went out from the church, and they were antichrists. They were opposing Christ as the God incarnate. So I think the papacy is an anti-Christian institution. I think the popes are antichrist, but are not the antichrist, the man of sin of Second Thessalonians. So American uh, standards changed that. Now, I wish they had remained a bit stronger. I mean, they... they they believed that the Roman church was apost- apostate, but in doing away with the one, they left the door open to uh, those who would want to say, well, the Roman church is is not an apostate church. It is an apostate church. So, But that would be an area where the church grew in its exegetical grasp of uh, Scripture. Uh, so. Uh, the, the doctrine's there. People simply want to say, well, we don't believe that, and so they use this slogan, and I think that is not playing fair. Now, anybody can come up with Scripture that says that uh, the, exegetically the standards here are erroneous, then we would reform in that area, and all Presbyterian churches have a way to uh, accomplish that. Uh, but... I think we have the foundation. We don't go back every generation and reinvent the foundation. We reaffirm the foundation for our generation exegetically. So we don't have to go back and reinvent the doctrine of the Trinity, but we want people to understand the biblical basis of that doctrine. The same is true of election or atonement or or the church or whatever. Now in the history of the church, because the Spirit uses the church to grow in its understanding of truth, there have been greater light on doctrines of Scripture. And so, for example, Calvin, the theologian of the Holy Spirit, built on Luther and much more holistic foundational approach to the work of the Spirit in illumining Scripture and in preaching in whatever. Southern Presbyterians, I think, were the great ecclesiologists of the Reformed Church and developed a vibrant doctrine of the church and particularly the role of deacons. And so these weren't changing truths. I like to think of as more as that the church grows in her maturity and her understanding and will begin to flesh out more things uh, practically. So you have to be careful. A lot of folks use it simply as a way to deny confessional teaching. That's dangerous. But if it's simply the church is going to grow in her grasp of particularly implications and practical outworking. For example, I do a lot of work in worship, and I'm teaching my intensive worship class this week. And I think there's areas in worship that modern Reformed churches that have well-regulated worship could be doing much more than they're doing. But part of that's going back to the past and uh, seeing things that that Calvin and the and the and other. Reformers did with respect to worship. And part of it, though, is looking at Scripture much more in terms of modern uh, exegetical experience and recovering the use of posture, although that was also emphasized um, by many people in the past as well. So I hope that uh, helps you see is that, yes, we'll come to new insights, but I don't know any Reformed doctrine that I think is going to exegetically should be changed
0: and the danger that dr pipe is citing about people who would hijack this slogan this 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 commendable phrase to corrupt the church is most clearly seen in my experience anyway in the liberal mainline churches because they will say we are for a continuing re- uh, reformation well so am i i'm from a, for a continuing reformation that sounds pretty good but what they mean by that is utterly changing everything that 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 the church has brought with her up to this age um, to get away from the teaching of the Bible. They're not. They're not saying let's go back to the Bible in the famous words of what was that Barnhouse or uh, who who said we got to go back to the Bible? It was one of those old radio guys, which is much more of a commendable it was the name of it's program, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah to the yeah. Bible or the Bible. Yeah, the, back to the Bible. All right. Our next question comes from Trent Still of Springfield, South Carolina, and Trent asks. Have you been helped by any non-Christian rhetoricians, maybe a classical source, but not exclusively recognized rhetoricians, on being a better communicator?
1: Trent, uh, yes, I have. I think that um, there's people that I can watch, uh, even actors. I think Kenneth Branagh as a man who uses his mouth well. And I often point out to men in preaching to look at how he uses his lips because I think most of our uh, preachers have lazy mouths. I think that uh, you know, Calvin's dictum that you affirm truth wherever you find it is very important. I just recently read Cicero on friendship and I marvel at his clarity of communication. And he was a brilliant rhetor and a quintilian. Uh, was uh, another one that we could all profit from going back to uh, to these men. Uh, cultural heroes, uh, John Buchan uh, was very useful. Mortimer Adler, who edited the the great books. Uh, and then some of the classic rhetorical books that you'll find brought us, and Dabney referring to Campbell and Watley, uh, men that probably had a Christian worldview, but... Uh, really, um, in the 19th century, 18th century, did a good job of, of trying to understand. We've used textbooks here. I don't think they were by Christians, either the one in logic or rhetoric, uh, but they are very useful.
0: In the public uh, speaking one textbook. by Lufkin is a Christian
1: textbook. I'm not real keen on that, though. You put me on the spot. but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Our rhetoric book, though, is not. Are what we've used. Men like uh, grammarians, like James White, who's an excellent writer as well as a grammarian. I think that Christians should read uh, good fiction. Some Reformed people don't have time for uh, fiction, but uh, and good writers, whether they're Christian or not, who can really uh, communicate well, that we can profit from all of them.
0: George Orwell has this essay on, uh, I think it's called Politics. In the english language it's in his book collection of essays is a short essay on basically the dumbing down of our speech and the the equivocation that exists and the damage he's particularly focusing on politics
1: but he understood uh, that i mean his novel Mm -hmm. but that
0: book's really helpful for for achieving a clear, a clear but rich writing style and speaking style and reading chesterton chesterton would be always
1: uh, all i think he was a christian he was a romanist (laughs) <laughs> but very, very useful. Uh, Lewis, um, Dorothy Sayers. Uh,
0: there's oh, so many
1: them. that are, are quite useful.
0: Flannery O'Connor. Flannery I love O'Connor? reading her yeah, stuff. Yeah, so
1: but we're off to the literature now.
0: Yeah, sorry, Trent, but good question. Thanks for getting us thinking on that. Our next question comes from Joshua Morrison. He's another distance student of ours. Hi, Josh. He asks, what is the fear of God, and
1: is it important for the Christian? Thank you, Josh. Yes, it used to be a very common expression of a Christian because it's a common expression in Scripture. There's a proper fear of God and there's an improper fear of God. You see the juxtaposition in uh, 1 Kings, our 2 Kings, when... Uh, the Syrians carry off uh, the northern kingdom and they send others in to occupy uh, the land. And then um, the, um, the, it says the people that came in the land that were having difficulties and they feared God, well, they were feared superstitiously. So that some priests and Levites were sent down to them who would teach them the fear of the Lord, uh, but it continues then that they um, they feared God superstitiously. So the same word is used of in First Kings 18, I think it is both of. Uh, uh, no, that's not right. It's uh, uh, da, 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 where were they carried off into captivity? That is later. That's that's right. Um, so they're carried off into captivity, the northern kingdom, and then we find this juxtaposition of the two types of the fear of God. So there's a superstitious fear of God that we must always uh, avoid. But the true fear of God, we can think of it in terms of coming to God as he has appointed, uh, believing his word, and desiring to please him according to his commandments. So it is a reverence that's filial in terms of uh, the affection of sons and daughters, but a reverence that is due to the greatest of all being, a reverence that would uh, make me fearful of displeasing him but make me longing to please him because of his uh, loveliness and because he is uh, my father. So a holy reverence that comes out of faith and love toward God Coming to him on his terms, loving his word, and seeking to please him according to his word. The way you
0: articulated that as a, a reverent fear, but also a an earnest desire to please, is that analogous to how we understand all the commandments that we find in the moral law of having a positive and a negative aspect or application, where we have a collection of prohibitions, but also a collection of um, of imperatives and, and and spurring us on to certain deeds?
1: Yeah, although I think that's, that's coming from a different angle. That's just simply the hermeneutical principle of how to understand any commandment of God: that the opposite of what is commanded is forbidden, the opposite of what is forbidden is commanded. But it's just the wholesale desire to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that is Second Corinthians seventeen. Uh, the two uses of fear: Second Corinthians or Second, second Chronicles? Kings, second Kings. Kings. Second Kings seventeen. I'm tired, so.
0: Yeah, we've had a we've both had a long day. I'm taking the class. Doctor Piper is preaching, so I'm also feeling a bit sluggish. So forgive forgive us. We have a question that came in on from one of our live listeners from William Tejeda. He asks, with recent talk of self defense in mind, were Jim Elliot and his missionary co laborers unwise or wrong to not defend themselves when mm. attacked? Tough question.
1: It is a very tough question, and and frankly. Um, I don't know. I think they had a gun with them. I think that uh, I would think on the basis of our catechism's interpretation of the Sixth Commandment that they should have defended themselves.
0: Are there mitigating circumstances, though? Because, I mean, we don't know all the facts. We don't of all the facts in front of us, we weren't there.
1: Well, no, I'm just saying theoretically. I mean, yeah. that's all we can say is yeah. theoretically. Let's just put it this way. If a missionary goes into a tribe and that tribe seeks to kill them, are they martyrs for Christ or are they uh, proper to defend themselves? And part of it would be a matter of conscience, as uh, long as they've thought about it ahead of time. I mean, we think about, I was just praying for one of our guys that was a pastor in a country and. He had to, to flee or die. And did he do the right thing and flee? Well, I think he did. Although he left his flock without a pastor. Um, and so, but I, I think that in his conscience he acted in, in the way that he, he thought before God he should do at that time. Uh, but on the other hand, there might be a man that said, I will stay and um, die for my flock. They'd been without a pastor still <laughs> and his family without a, a husband and a father. But the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So I don't know there's an easy answer to that. I did find you know, in, in rereading that story that at least in reading this story, I think they were a bit naive. Uh, but we'll leave that to the Lord. But that's very different from uh, somebody doing a home invasion, or coming up to you on the street. I mean, oh, yeah. in this case, the, the the dynamic going on is these were an unreached people, and they wanted to get the gospel to them, and to kill them was counterproductive for what they wanted to uh, accomplish. And they didn't know that if you know if they submitted, could they would they live and be able to to. Uh... We do know that it opened the door in God's providence then, for Valerie. Uh, to go in and to take her daughter and live with those people and share the gospel with them. So uh, we, in retrospect, but that's very different though from in a country where it's simply a matter of uh, lawlessness and you know that someone is uh, seeking to kill you or rape your wife or kill your children or whatever, then I think the catechism is very clear we do have a responsibility to defend ourselves,
0: and that was one of one of the big gripes that many of us reformed guys had with John Piper's article. Uh, I, basically, pro pacifism against defending yourself in case of a home invasion. I mean, it's not even like you're trying to present the gospel to somebody right. door to door and they attack you. That's one thing, but if if someone's invading your home and threatening your wife and your children, then yeah. Our next question comes from Kevin here in Simpsonville, and he asks another very practical question Is it appropriate to split our tithe between our local church and some other Christian organization? May Christians divide their tithes between two local churches or between a local church and a parachurch ministry? And in asking this question, Kevin also specified he, he knows it wouldn't be good with the parachurch ministry that focuses on mercy ministries or diaconal issues that are kind of beyond what the church can really do on its own. But he's speaking of parachurch ministries that uh, whose purpose is things like educating uh, ministers, like we are here at the seminary or... Uh, Uh, information ministries like Ligonier, Desiring God, or Gospel Coalition, or something like that.
1: And I think the passage that Kevin, and Kevin, good to hear from you, thank you. I think the passage he has in mind is Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. So the principle that many have developed out of that, that the whole tithe is to be brought into the treasury of uh, the local church. I'm not sure that that is a valid um, extension of that text, but we are required by our membership vows, at least in in Reformed Presbyterian churches, to support the church to the best of our ability. And so, I think the general rule of thumb is that the tithe goes to my local church, where I enjoy the means of grace, and I have a responsibility that the pastor pastors are paid and the church is cared for. And that's why we distinguish between tithes and offerings. The Bible's very clear that there are free will offerings, both in the Old Testament. I think these are the offerings that Paul's talking about diagonally uh, in his uh, in his epistles. So I would say the rule of thumb is that your tithe should go to your local church uh, in order to, uh, as an act of worship. Now that's that, that's also, in fact, I'm writing uh, and y'all can pray for me in this the pamphlet series. And by the way, just my newest one was just published by uh, Heritage Reform, and that is How Do We Glorify God in All Things?
0: And that's in the series Cultivating Biblical Godliness, which right. is co-edited by Dr. Joel Beeke and Dr. Ryan McGraw here at our seminary.
1: So this year I'm doing one on uh, tithing and stewardship. So I want to study these issues even more fully. It might change my mind on a lot of things in that process. Uh, but um, I would say that one thing we have to keep in mind is the tithe is an act of worship. So when you're bringing it into the household of God, when the church has an offering, that is not a fundraising activity, that is a way uh, to uh, worship God. I don't think it has to be all your tithe, though, to worship God. So the important thing, I think, is is my church properly cared for? Do they have uh, in abundance, um, and then I make a decision of what to do with other uh, income. Now, a tithe is technically 10%. One of the things that I've taught pastorally and I believe is that, well, two things. One is I should tithe if, if the seminary is paying my ed- medical insurance, are they giving me retirement policy? I'm I'm to tithe on that as well. That is uh, income. I used not to do that. I had a ruling elder rebuke me about that, and he was right, and I changed changed my practice. Second thing is that when I was young and um, didn't have the kind of income that I have now, uh, a 10% was actually sacrificial. But I think I'd be wrong at what I make now uh, just to give 10%. And so, by God's grace, we give a lot more than than 10%. And so, um, when I figure my tithe to the church, I basically figure it on my uh, income. So, the church pays me a salary. I want that tithe to go to the church. But what I would tithe on my insurance premiums or my retirement or what I make in other uh, types of writing or speaking— and when I do over and above the ten percent, then um, I give it to some missionaries through the church, or to Greenville Seminary. Uh, so that's been my my practical approach uh, to that. The church must take first place, but if a person has more than ten percent, give ten percent to the church, and then um, go above that and give to uh, well, give to Greenville Seminary above
0: all. <laughs> Thank you for the question, Kevin. Our next question comes from Jonathan Bartlett of Alpharetta, Georgia. Jonathan is hoping to study with us starting this fall. We're looking forward to having him join us. He asks, Some Reformed pastors preach in a way that would fit very well in the 17th century, but seem to have difficulty communicating in a way that millennials will follow. Do you think pastors need to speak differently to millennials than they do to an older generation? And we can make that even more general. How do we, how do we adjust our presentation and our, and, our, and our speech and our preaching to different groups of people as time rolls on?
1: The Reformers and the Puritans uh, developed a concept called the plain style. And I think the plain style is the way we're supposed to preach to any generation and to whether they're church members or not. And that is we use good, uh, strong English words with not a lot of um, idiosyncratic idioms and stuff uh, and definitely not an older language. But that should be what we owe to anybody. So if I'm speaking, well, plain style, the way I put it to people is, and again, another book that I found uh, very uh, useful, Trent, was... uh, the Art of Plain Speaking, uh, he's not a Christian man, but uh, he wrote the principles that then modern journalism picked up on, and that is you basically communicate at a middle school level. And when you look at your uh, average uh, magazine article or newspaper, that's what they're doing. So uh, that's what's important is that we communicate at a level to be understood by everybody. We don't need to pick up the jargon. In fact, we should not pick up the jargon of uh, 21st century millennials or whatever but speak god's truth in plain simple strong language and we do that independence upon the holy spirit and that's what god's going to use i think it's absolutely foolish to speak to people uh, in the 17th century language uh, we i encourage praying with you's and not these and thou's and not using the authorized version as much as i love it simply because I don't want to give impression to young people today that there's something archaic about the Christian faith. But no, I would not pander uh, to millennials by adopting a certain cliché is the word I was looking for a while ago, not idiom. There are useless idioms, but clichés, the language of the time, I don't think that's going to be useful at all. I don't allow my students to do it. I think Dr.
0: Pipe is throwing shade against slang right now. Slang's the word I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> throwing shade is a millennial phrase. I think. I'm a millennial, but
1: I oh, don't know. I don't really fit in. But throwing shade doesn't communicate to <laughs> I think it's important to use the plain style, uh, which is strong language, good sentences, concrete language, short sentences, and a vocabulary that is underst- understandable by a middle school person.
0: Mm-hmm. When I was going through school, they said right at a level that a th- third grader could understand. Well, is, you were in
1: public schools. What do you expect?
0: That was treacherously difficult. Is
1: very difficult. No, that would be... Then you're really condescending, I think. Yeah. I mean, you can Rudolph come Flesh is the one that wrote The Art of Plain Speaking. It's still a very useful book. In fact, it's probably one of the more useful books that I've read on communication.
0: And then mixing... I mean, this is the whole key of applicatory preaching as we're taught here. Um, keeping in mind you have not just one homogenous group right. of people we have different audiences you're addressing so and applying you, you address your
1: them according to need and characteristic spiritually not in a not in their slang
0: yeah and so you speak to children and you do right. that appropriately you speak to adults and you right. do that appropriately all right very good thank you jonathan we're looking forward to welcoming you uh, to our community when you're here our next question comes from laudong lando of las pinas city philippines and he asks, What are the benefits of the new covenant?
1: Thank you, Landando. This was given to us by the Holy Spirit to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 and picked up on then by the writer to the Hebrews in verse 31 of 31 Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and their sin will I remember no more. Now, there are those that say what we have here is proof then that the, uh, the new covenant uh, is divorced from the old covenant responsibilities, but that really would be quite foolish when we look here, because it's God's law uh, that is written on the heart, and it's made with Israel and Judah. So the, the benefits are not something that is new, but something that comes to its fullest expression. So, for example, the law written on our hearts, in the New Covenant, we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and in regeneration brings us to a much greater realization. Our consciences are corrected by the Spirit through Scripture, and we come to a much uh, fuller realization of the truth of God's Word, but also an empowerment to obey but I think exceeds. That's why, when you read in the old covenant of the foibles and falls of almost every old covenant hero, we got to realize that what Jesus said of John the Baptist, the least in the in the in the new covenant is better off than the greatest of the old covenant, because we have the Holy Spirit empowering us, keeping us. I often say I think the greatest privilege of the new covenant is persevering grace. That. Uh, God uh, keeps us from these disastrous falls. It's not saying that a person doesn't at times fall away, but the pattern is God keeping us. And then this not needing a teacher, again, John applies that in 1 John 2 to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We need earthly teachers, but we have the anointing of the Spirit that they didn't have each person. That's why Joel's prophecy is so important. It's just that every person will have the Spirit in exactly the same way THAT A PROPHET HAD THE HOLY SPIRIT IN THE OLD TESTAMENT. AND OF COURSE THE FORGIVENESS OF SINS, RIGHT IN HEBREWS SAYS THAT AS LONG AS THE SACRIFICES REMAINED, THAT YES, GOD WAS FORGIVING SINS, BUT THERE WAS NOT THE ONCE AND FOR ALL SACRIFICE ON WHICH THE PARDON WOULD BELONG TO US, AND THAT NOW IS CLEAR IN in THE NEW COVENANT. THANK YOU FOR THE QUESTION, LAODANG.
0: IT'S ALWAYS A GOOD REMINDER TO US TO REHEARSE THE BENEFITS THAT WE HAVE. In, uh, in the new covenant and the fulfilled promises of God and to thank God for these things. So we have a next question. It's from an anonymous longtime listener. And it's a bit it's been involved. And um, the person asks, I'm the token Christian person in my family, which usually involves a number of pseudo-pastoral activities like praying before meals at family gatherings and answering spiritual questions. I don't really mind that. However, I have been approached by a family member to officiate at his wedding. This cousin of mine professes faith but is not currently walking with the Lord. As far as I can tell, he is already living with his girlfriend with whom he has a child. He does not attend church regularly and goes to a very casual, seeker-sensitive church when he does attend. The girl he's marrying is at best, quote, open, end quote, to Christianity, but is not someone I would recognize as a professing believer. I am not ordained to the ministry nor am I licensed with the state to officiate at weddings. In theory, I would not be opposed to doing this if both bride and groom were active Christians but then the clear path to follow would be to approach their pastor to officiate. On one hand, I do not want to come across as harsh and unloving by refusing outright. I am very glad that my cousin did not abandon his girlfriend with a child out of wedlock and I love them all dearly. It's a tough situation. On the other hand, do not want to enable or affirm the sinful lifestyle that has led to this situation. Can you help me to think through this dilemma that I'm in?
1: Well, Mr. Anonymous, uh, the first thing is you really don't have a dilemma because you would not be allowed by the law to perform the uh, the marriage ceremony by the state or by your uh, denomination if you are in a regular um, denomination that requires proper uh, ordination. But of course, the question is much. Deeper than that, let's assume that you were ordained. You'll be facing the same type of question, and I've, I've had many friends who had to face this uh, this question. Um, and part of the answer is that we must obey God and not men. And so, what is a Christian wedding all about? You don't have to have a Christian wedding for a couple to be married. And so, I've always said when I particularly was in the pastorate that I'm not in the Miriam business, I'm in the business of building Christian families. And I'm going to invest my time in doing that. The uh I would encourage them to have a civil service and explain to them this would probably be the wiser course for you because you don't want to be taking vows to God uh, in your present state. And then I would go to the service. Uh, it is A proper thing that they're getting married. It's a proper thing that non-Christians get married. Even in this case, it's proper for them because even if he were a Christian and she's not, he's had a child with her, he should marry her. He has a biblical responsibility to do so. Unless her father says no. So uh, now what I would do in a case where there was a child out of wedlock and a couple came to me, even if they weren't Christians, I would do a civil service, which I can do. As a pastor as a ordained or, minister, yeah uh, and simply uh get them married for the sake of that child, uh, but I would not do it as a minister, and I would never encourage a minister to do uh, this uh this wedding, but so you know, I think it's better well you you got the out, I'm not allowed to do this, but you know I think you're probably wiser to. Uh, have a, a civil service, uh, but I'd be glad to come as a witness and, and attend that service or if you want going to have a reception afterwards or whatever. Keep the doors open, but don't compromise your own uh, ministry. You know,
0: it's a sensitive situation, and it, it it's, I think, representative of much of modern sentimental religion, that religion is all about us. It's all about me. It's there when I need it. It's 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 a nice adornment to the things that happen in my life, as long as it doesn't inconvenience me. Right. And um, but at the same time, you don't want to totally burn someone that you love and that and that you'll be in touch with. So, so our next uh, our next question comes in from another long time listener who who desired to be anonymous, and she asks, God told Hosea to marry an immoral woman. Christians are not to be unequally yoked. How do we address this apparent discrepancy?
1: Well, you guys today have really uh, ganged up on me with hard questions. <laughs> the first question is, um, at this point, was she a harlot, or was God knowing that she was going to become a harlot? But the second question is, she was a member of the covenant community. Third principle, then, is what God's doing, is, and, I, and I say that's important because God's illustrating it was his covenant people who played the harlot with him. And so this is a woman in covenant with God who now comes into covenant with her husband. And so uh, God, um, who does not want us to be unequally yoked, is the one that commanded uh, this marriage. But it was not that she was not a member of the covenant people. This was not that he was marrying a, a Canaanite woman or an Amorite woman. She was a member of the covenant people. And the, she would have been. he would have been unequally yoked if he had married her so we all know those situations where uh, a man or woman in the church marry and one of them ends up being uh, an adulterer and was even when they got married and they didn't know it or they knew it and they believed that the person was going to uh, they said i've repented and and i'm different now in my lifestyle so there's all those things going on but we let scripture can comp- interpret scripture whatever god did with hosea and gomer God's told us that we're not to be unequally yoked. God's told men to marry women that fear Him and women to marry men that fear God. And they should also be of the same persuasions theologically. Uh, and a woman is to marry a man that she's comfortable is going to be her spiritual head. And a man is to marry a woman he's comfortable he wants her to rear in his children and being a helper corresponding to him. So we develop our lives on the basis of the clear-cut commands of Scripture not on a unique situation like Hosea and Gomer. I never even
0: thought about that, that Gomer and Hosea, that, that's not an unequally yoked scenario. Now I know, and now you all know. Our next question comes from another listener who didn't ask necessarily be anonymous, but for the sake of his situation, I'm going to keep him anonymous. (laughs) So we got three varieties of anonymous listeners uh, today. Um, What advice would you give to someone who is visiting and seeking membership in a new congregation, which does not share all the same convictions with, with me, is what he's saying. For instance... I affirm exclusive psalmody and Sabbath-keeping and other regulative principle of worship distinctives, yet I'm seeking membership in a congregation that may differ in belief and in practice. Should I inform the session of my convictions up front, and how should it be approached in a gracious and humble way? My fear is that I will sound condescending or holier than thou for only singing the psalms or for not observing Christmas or, or the like.
1: I think your instinct, uh, Mr. Anonymous, is good, and that is that you ought to not join a church where there's that, that many strong differences uh, without uh, letting the session know. And you, you approach that by simply saying, you know, I'm not condemning you, and I'm willing to come under your authority. But I think that uh, you'll need to know that... Uh, as I take these vows, and that's why you have to clarify, uh, I take vows to support the church and its work and ministry. That, uh, in good conscience, I cannot uh, sing non-inspired hymns. I will not stand out. I'll open the hymn book and stand there, and you know, in the midst of of the congregation as they sing, and I will not in any way militate against the church's positions. The uh, same with, uh, I'm not going to attend a special uh, Holy Day service, uh, and that's just on the Lord's Day. If it's on the Lord's Day, then I'm going to uh, attend, that, uh, attend that service. Uh, so those areas where you call them regular principal areas, and they are, But be careful of thinking that, well, because people don't agree with you, they don't believe the regular principle. I strongly hold the regular principle of worship, but I have no problem. Uh, In fact, I believe it requires me to sing hymns. So that's fine, but you just have to humbly uh, let that be known. Now the Sabbath's a bit different, isn't it? If this is a confessional church that you are uh, joining, I don't think you need to tell them that you're a sabbatarian you need to assume that they are (laughs) and you want to keep the freedom then uh if in fact they are not uh uh, holding to the sabbath to be able in a winsome way to encourage them see with the other principles there are things that uh, would be uh people that are relatives would disagree with you, and if this church has formal positions, So the church has a formal position on the Sabbath that's contrary to the standards, well, I'm not sure I'd join it. Now, I recognize that might be the only choice you have. But see, I make that a much higher issue. Uh, it's, a, it's a Ten Commandment issue. It's a creation ordinance issue. So, but... That you have to approach it then I think differently and so I don't think you need to let your flag fly on that one unless the church is already doing things like uh, public recreational activities and, and stuff like that and but in that you don't want to lock yourself in at that point where you wouldn't be able to encourage people and give them literature whereas I think submitting to the elders on the other two issues, you would not be in a position to do that. So, for example, if in my church I received a Calvinistic Baptist, uh, if they were willing to sit under the preaching and the instruction of the word and to attend the sacraments when they were administered and not in any way seek to teach their position, they could be, and we've had this on the podcast before, they could be members in the church. Couldn't be a church officer, but could be a member. On the Sabbath, you don't want to ever put yourself in a position where you cannot encourage others uh, to do that which you are convinced from Scripture, and the confession is what God requires.
0: Well, That brings us up on our time, and um, and we have we have a couple questions from um, folks who submitted two for this month, and we will get to those. Next month also gives us some time to study, or at least the
1: first two questions next month. Lord willing, I do have to study yeah. one of them in particular.
0: And I'm sure Chad Warner of Greenville, South Carolina, will have another question for us at the top of the list. In fact, I know he does.
1: And anonymous will too. And yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. That Virginia will and and something about tongues, funky
0: tongues. Jerry, that was my favorite question of of the session. Man, funky tongues. I'm digging it. All right. Thank you for listening to Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Please visit gpts.edu conference for information about our Spring Theology Conference on Jesus Christ, the Lord of Glory, the, the work and person of Christ. And also for information about our 20th anniversary banquet celebrating Dr. Pipe's 20th anniversary as president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. God bless you and have a, have a wonderful month. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.